Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and today we have a special guest with us today. We have Nathan Kravitz. <laughs> no, it's Cravat, actually. We just had that conversation. But we have Nathan on today. He is one of the hosts at the Recovering Fundamentalists, or RFP for short, uh, Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We did have JC on earlier this summer, and now we get to have Nathan on today. Uh, for those of you who haven't already, go follow their podcast. It's hilarious, and it's also very encouraging, and it's not meant to bash, but encourage. But we will get into all that here in a second. So, Nathan, Nathan, how you doing, man? Doing good, Will. It's good to be with you. Thanks for asking me, man. No problem. Thanks for being on. It's not many people want to associate with me because I'm told I smell funny, so it's all right. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, you know, you do this recovery fundamentalist podcast thing, and you got some recognition for it. But not everyone knows what what do you mean by recovery fundamentalist, and what is uh, when you say IFB and all that good jazz. What are you talking about there, and what was your association with that? Okay, so we chose the name. JC and I met back in uh, probably October of 2019, and we were just throwing this around as an idea, and we came up with multiple names like X-Fundy and a few other ones, and I think it came out of my mouth first that uh, basically we're just recovering fundamentalists, and I was just kind of throwing it out there, and JC was like, whoa. Whoa, let's talk about that. So we kind of zoomed into what that means. And basically, the whole movement we were raised in is the IFC, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. And the fundamentalist is really what got touted the most in the camp meeting uh, crowd that I grew up in. And uh, most, most of the churches that I grew up in, fundamentalism was a really big deal. So when we started talking about basically our path away from the independent fundamental Baptist church, it kind of came down to this whole idea of fundamentalism, and we like to zoom in on that. But, but here's the play on words. Uh, I still consider myself a fundamentalist, and uh, I, I still hold to the fundamentals of the Christian faith as they were set up back in the late um, 1800s, early 1900s, and I don't have a problem with that. The problem is that people have hijacked the fundamentalist movement and made it something totally different from what it was intended to be. So part of our name is Recovering Fundamentalist because we want to kind of recover that name that has been hijacked by people that uh, really aren't true fundamentalists by the true sense of the word. I really like that. That's what stuck out to me when I first heard. It. I was like, "Ooh, that's a, that's catchy. I like it." Uh, you know, it's something you. you know, that's the thing when you're ever you're branding, right? You, or you're trying to come up with a name. It's like, how can I give our, our point across in one phrase? You know, so that for us, the church split. Hey, they talk about divisive issues. That makes that's very clear. Recovering fundamentalist. Same thing. And one thing that I hold on to me when I first started listening to your program was the very fact when you guys first talked about like, "Hey, there's this fundamentalism." which is the IFB in this particular sense. But then there's fundamentals of the faith. And those are very different things. The fundamentals of the faith is, of course, salvation through Jesus Christ, you know, virgin birth, things like that. But then there's this thing that it's morphed into, or like you said, was hijacked by this other group. And then they say that they're the true fundamentalists, when in reality, it's been a hijacked kind of situation. So uh, anyway, so yeah. real quick, what, what is your, so you were once in the IFB, correct? Yeah, I was actually born into the IFB. I was in an IFB church nine months before I was born, so I've got that going for me. And then after I was born, I was I was 
you know, raised on the pews of an independent fundamental Baptist church. My parents have told me that I could sing victory in Jesus before I could speak. I could actually sing multiple hymns before I could even communicate ideas through words. So I basically learned to talk through singing hymns. Talented. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> when I was, when I was uh, four and a half years old, almost five, my dad and my mom left Pensacola, Florida, headed to, I uh, just went blank. What is the name of this? Uh, the Roloff Home in Corpus Christi, Texas. So my dad had written in to Lester Roloff on his radio program, and on his program he read this letter and said, we have a guy who has a background in construction. God has called him into the ministry. He wrote a letter and said he wants to come help us if we have a need. So he's on his way out here to serve at the Roloff home. So we packed up in a single cab F-100 Ford Ranger, I think a 1969 pickup truck, five of us. Headed from Pensacola, Florida to Corpus Christi, Texas. And I remember sitting in the floor of, of that truck while the other four members of my family were on the seat. And I believe my sister was probably on my mom's lap, which that was real safe. None of us had seat belts on back in, uh, I guess this would have been, ooh, early 1980s. And so we headed out. We stopped at the New Bethany Home for Girls. And if you do a search on that, you on line, you will see that that was shrouded in all sorts of uh, uh, things that happened and uh, illegal things that happened, investigation the way till the guy who ran the girls' home, uh, Mac Ford, actually died in the middle of, of uh, court cases and things against them, and the girls' home was shut down. But we were there for one year. We actually stopped there on the way to the roll-off homes. They needed so much help, we stayed. We never made it to Texas. And um, my dad worked there for about a year, saw that there were issues, and he uh, basically took us out of that. And long story short, we met um, a family there that had started a boys' home in Rock Spring, Georgia. And that guy ended up uh, being ran over by a motorhome, an RV, and uh, they called my dad to come and fill in for him. <laughs> Wow. So we went to this girl, this boy's home to fill in and ended up being there for 25 years. And I was there until I got married and and um, moved out, but lived there, was raised there my whole life. Wow. So and it not was also quite the fundamental Baptist. Right. Home. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> so you would you were you guys definitely went around a little bit for a second there. Never quite the way you had planned it. That's that's pretty standard. I, it's like the IFB uh, missionaries. Like that, whatever you hear about that, it's always some wild thing, similar to absolutely. To that. Yeah, that's funny. So you guys, so you were raised in it. Now, what were some of the things in the IFB that you would consider to be very unique to that particular group for people who might not be familiar with what the IFB is? Because I know I have some listeners that are all over the place on this. They have no idea. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Okay, so what I was born into in Pensacola, Florida, um, was uh, a, a local church. I believe it was Fellowship Baptist, uh, Independent Baptist, and my parents went there. But my dad ended up going to uh, Ruckman Bible School uh, for... <laughs> oh, Ruckmanite, uh, you say? Yes, a couple wow. of years. So we were, we were pretty deeply entrenched in that. And then we, um, 
once we got into Georgia, um, Ruffman, when he would come to this area, we would go hear him. And I remember hearing Phil Kidd as uh, a child at different camp meetings. We were really close in Rock Spring, Georgia, to Rathaka, Georgia, which was where Sammy Allen, all them were at. So the IFB I was brought up in was absolutely King James only. Anything else was called a perversion. It was called corrupt. It yep. was called basically evil. And there were people, uh, the, the big argument was, can people be saved out of a different version? That, that was seriously the discussion. And a lot of people I grew up around said, no, they can't be. And some said, yes, they can, but they need to really find the truth and, and come around to the King James. Also, dress standards. You know, um, women had to always wear dresses. And the longer, the better. And um, very, very strict. As a child, looking back at pictures and things like that, it kind of looked like we were Mennonite a little bit. Uh, the guys, we weren't allowed to have long hair or jewelry or earrings or necklaces or anything like that. But obviously, as, as it is in most movements like that, legalist movements, it, it wasn't as restrictive for men as it was for women. But that was basically what I grew up around. A lot of camp meetings, a lot of revival services. There were many times as a young boy that I was in church five to seven days a week, uh, traveling around. The boys' home would go and sing. So, uh, you know, I got to travel around and sing at a lot of different places. And uh, growing up at the boys' home was, was pretty fun. We had dirt bikes. We had horses. There was an indoor gym, basketball courts. I mean, there's, there's always someone to play with. So it was, it was fun. My parents were really cool. They were never extremists. But we were surrounded by the extremists. And uh, I say the reason that I'm still a Christian is because my parents were the real deal. And even though we were brought up around that stuff, anytime I asked them difficult questions, they tried to give me Bible answers. But that's actually, so that's, well, that's kind of unique then. So your parents were the extreme types, but the people that you were around you were extreme. That's different than a lot of people I talked to who were raised in the IFB is that their parents were among the extreme types. So that's kind of unique. Um, the, the other thing that, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, traveling, these other, these other things like King James onlyism, were you really saved? Uh, it's funny, I, my, my pastor wasn't King James only, but our church used the King James and a lot of King James onlyists went there. So I heard some of these debates and I always thought that was, it was absurd. Even when I was a kid, I was like, I'd be King James only, but come on, like, isn't it death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And so, but when you, but when you think about it, it's like, man, you're questioning people's salvation based on a, on a certain translation that wasn't even around until the yeah. 1600s. Like, what? Uh, so. Anyway, not to get into much on that bandwagon, but you know, you mentioned dress codes and whatnot. Now, also was uh, you know, so strict dress codes, that, um, Bible versions, music standards, and by that, like anything, basically, were you raised the same way, like drums, guitars, uh, anything that remotely sounded oh, yeah. like it came out in the 20th century is wrong. Yes, absolutely. There were uh, we we played guitars and banjos and mandolins and things like that. So more bluegrass style. Heathens. But, uh, we we yes, but we did not have drums. Uh, but we weren't high church. It was it was good mix of southern, southern gospel. I almost said southern Baptist. That was a bad Whoa. word when I was growing up. All the southern Baptists <laughs> were absolutely liberals. And uh, I spent the first. Yeah, I spent the first 15 years of my life learning how evil Southern Baptists were. And then in high school, I went to a Southern Baptist church with a friend that I went to school with at uh, Tennessee Temple uh, High School. Oh, yeah. And they were incredibly conservative, 
I think they even used the King James and, uh, you know, believed all the fundamentals. And I was like, hold on. Uh, I've been told my whole life that these are the bad guys. And, uh, yeah, I, I found out pretty quickly that wasn't true. But one of the things that really defined uh, the IFB I grew up in was showmanship in the pulpit. Uh, it was all about how good of a preacher, how good of a pulpiteer somebody was. Revivalism was rampant. And it was more about putting on a show, getting an emotional response. I'm talking 30, 40 minute uh, sermons, and then sometimes an hour, hour and a half invitation, trying to drag people down to the altar to get saved or rededicate their lives. And uh, the camp meetings and the revivals were always judged by how emotional of a response they received. It wasn't about how biblical, it wasn't about going deeper, it was about repeating the same talking points over and over again and uh that's that's one of the reasons i walked away because it, i didn't see the spiritual depth there that i desired which yeah which is actually funny because their whole thing is all these you know hippie churches with all their fancy music and lights and stuff they're just putting on a show and trying to get emotional response i mean i can't tell you how many times i heard that and then i yeah i listened to you know will galkin came about once every year are you familiar with who even who they are like the galkins or whatever um Okay, they're 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 IFB evangelists, and uh, they're they're with the Steve Pettit group, um, or they were with the Steve Pettit group. I don't know what's going on now, but anyway, it was this whole like I, I always found that funny because they also would push this whole uh, emotionalism behind the pulpit and maybe pull two verses uh, and divorce it, divorce the verses from the context, and then just hammer on that particular phrase and make it use whatever way it was. So there's no like, and it says biblical honesty going on. So I realized over time that I personally was very inequipped on handling the Bible because all the phrases I was using were out of context. And once you read it in context, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, yep. So yeah, I thought, I think that's very powerful. I, that's something that I've had other people who went breaking Baptist on my program for lack of a better term. <laughs> and, uh, and most people have not talked about that part of it. So the emotional manipulation I think is huge. And the showmanship, like yeah. I, I mean, it was always, I mean, what's his name? One, one guy put an ax through a through a TV <laughs> on stage? Yeah, that was Larry Brown. That's it. Yes. Yeah. So there's, and that's the thing. It's like always this, oh, find the most bombastic, crazy way to get people's attention. And uh, I went to, so the thing is with my church growing up, like I said, they were IFB light. They weren't necessarily fully IFB. I actually have a lot of respect for my pastor. Yeah. But one of the things, so, but when I went to Fairhaven, that's when I got the full baptism into the IFB was I went to Fairhaven. And I remember this, this one guy, yes, oh man, was that a, <laughs> whoo, uh, that was a trip. I was, I was literally there like, okay, I'm, I'm with, I'm even King James only, but what is this craziness? But anyway, uh, <laughs> there was, oh, I remember this one guy there. He was the first graduate of Fairhaven. Uh, John, it was John Smith, I think. And John Smith, uh, his son was there. And his son was talking about his dad was the very first Fairhaven preacher guy uh, to graduate. And, who, you know, so the family was really big. And, oh, he's coming to preach. And everyone talked about how great a preacher he was. And I remember I went. Now, you have to remember, my pastor was actually very exegetical and very down to earth. And this guy. Yeah, I remember hearing you say that. Yeah, yep. And then I went to hear this guy who just, it was nothing but shouting and flinging around a King James Bible. And I was just, 
literally there, like my ears were hurting from the yelling and screaming. And then there was the 45 minute thereabouts uh, invitation. And I just sat there like, I feel like they're just trying to get guilt people, guilt me into walking forward into the altar. And do you think that has any impact? Uh, Sorry, that was a long rabbit trail. I found the rabbit. I killed it dead. But would you... uh, would you say there was a, that impacted you at all and just the way you were – did it confuse you and how you navigated theology and God a little bit? How did that work for you personally? Yeah, it absolutely confused me to the point that I was saved and baptized multiple times. I believe the last count was uh, actually four baptisms. There was probably wow. more – uh, actual salvation experiences and just never felt like I was good enough because I never measured up. And anytime this uh, emotional uh, pitch was given and uh, almost like the evangelist was a salesman and he had to get you to buy his product and the one that you bought before wasn't good enough. Well, that's good. It, it was something that, that manipulated a young man because I truly did want to serve God. I truly did want to uh, know that I was going to heaven when I died and know that I was living the right kind of life. But man, you know what it's like growing up being being uh, in church and a church kid. I was a missionary's kid, pastor's kid, and uh, the other pastor's kids, the missionary's kids I grew up around, we were a mess, man. We could, we could do a, a show uh, about missionary and preacher's kids because the things that we got into were just as bad as anything out in the world. But you know, I, when I came around to talking about recovering from fundamentalism, uh, a lot of people mean different things when they say that. But for me, I put down just a few that, that touches on the topics we've already said. And one of them is changing, exchanging showmanship for expository preaching. Like, I have a choice as an adult what I'm going to sit under and what my family is going to sit under. And now as a pastor, what I'm going to put out for other people. True. And showmanship... Just, you know, it works at high school youth retreats, but it really doesn't last. And, uh, you know, I remember getting home and, and making these commitments and after coming back from camp and, you know, it lasts about two weeks and then I'm, I'm doing things again that I'm not supposed to and just don't know what's wrong. And I think that bleeds into the second thing is exchanging revivalism for discipleship. Everybody wants this big response. We're, we're talking about revivalism, and, and uh, on one of our, our most recent episodes, uh, IFB Preacher Clips uh, said that revivalism or revival is the Sasquatch of the IFB movement. And I think he's absolutely right, because you're always chasing that thing you can't catch. But revivalism isn't what the Bible tells us to go after. We're to go after discipleship, to make disciples. So for me, that was a huge shift in my life. Oh, absolutely. And that was my thing is I, I remember forever just wanting uh, discipleship. That's all I ever wanted. Like, I just kept reaching out to people and I would try to do whatever they asked. And, and I just kept getting ignored because I was kind of the worldly kid originally in the youth group. And I, then I changed my life and it just didn't work. And, um, and you're right. And I, that whole idea of exchanging, uh, eva- uh, discipleship for evangelism, uh, no, for revivalship is so crucial because all the young people I've invested to into and discipled, I've seen them, their lives get better. But if all I did was preach at them, it really just doesn't do much. And then also when you mentioned like, 
the fact that your preacher kids were just as messed up as everyone else, I would almost argue in a scary way more so uh, for a lot. It's e- I would say, because, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. what almost happens, and I, this happened to me even though I wasn't a preacher's kid, but because I was in the IFB for so long, you get so good at putting on that mask, putting on that tie, throwing on your jacket, and looking like the part, and you get so good at putting on the mask that you actually are no longer genuine. And you're, you're not being open and therefore this monster, whatever sin that might be is constantly growing up behind you and getting a few pounds heavier. And it's just because you've gotten so good at hiding everything. So, um, and, and I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it was unintentional because what, what the IFB harped on so much and what I grew up under was, uh, really, if, if you sum it all up, it's all about orthodoxy. You've got to have the right beliefs. If you nod your head, if you say amen, if you respond the right way to all these right beliefs, then the, the unspoken uh, thought process, I believe, was if, if you're good with what I just preached, then you're going to go out and, and live the gospel out and live in this world. But the problem is orthodoxy doesn't, doesn't automatically mean that the orthopraxy is going to happen, <laughs> and that's where you have to go live out your faith. And I can I can check off all the right boxes of fundamentalism, which is what fundamentalism is, fundamentalism is really kind of all about, is checking all the right boxes. And that's great because the New Testament, the majority of it, is about sound doctrine. So checking the right boxes is important, but that's not all there is. You've got to live humbly. You've got to walk by faith. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to be transparent. You've got to have accountability. And none of those things were talked about. Absolutely. Um, so, you were so you were in that boys' home for twenty five years in the IFB. Now, uh, and obviously, and you're older now, obviously. But what were the things that uh, kind of what were the things that started setting you off? Like, what kind of were the things that kind of started were being the straws that were slowly breaking the camel's back? Well, there were there were a lot of things, and I don't think it was something that that just kind of uh, happened all at one time. I remember questioning uh, a teaching in my Baptist church, Independent Baptist Church, when I was between 8 and 10 years old. The pastor was preaching on new wine versus old wine, saying that alcohol was a sin, oh, and he was going to prove it. And, and he said that new wine in Scripture was grape juice. Old wine was fermented, it was strong drink, and it was evil. And I remember sitting there as a, I, I would guess, 10-year-old boy, and flipping my Bible open to the book of Acts, I was a little fundamentalist. I knew exactly where to go. And in Acts chapter uh, 2 or 3, where Peter is preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he begins to preach, and they're speaking in tongues, and all the nations that were gathered around at Pentecost for this feast in Jerusalem, they said, these men are drunk with new wine. <laughs> and as a 10-year-old boy, I, I raised my hand and I said, if, if that's the case, if you're building your whole case on that, what about when they say they're drunk with new wine and the pastor couldn't answer my question and I got in trouble for asking that question? So as a young boy, I took notes because I had ADD and ADHD and they didn't know what that was. So I got a spanking after every church service. Basically. Naturally. But I learned that if taking notes would help me focus. So I started taking notes and it's something I, I still do to this day. And uh, I would actually think about what the pastor was saying. I might be drawing a picture of him, but I was processing what he was saying and would ask questions. And on the way home, after many 
many revival services, church services, I would ask my mom and dad questions, and they would always give me Bible answers, and they would always point out when someone was being someone was being an extremist, whether it was about the King James Version. And I had a lot of talks with my dad, and he was he only used the King James, but I wouldn't say he was King James only. Like King James preferred. He say someone else. Yes, exactly, and he's never going to change, and he doesn't need to, I don't think. But that he he was very balanced, and he would answer questions. I remember asking him in um, I was still in elementary school, and I asked him on the way to school one day, Dad, are all of these other versions really perversions and really corrupted? Are they evil? And he said, Son, I would maybe say they were watered down, and I don't like them, and I don't I don't uh, want to use them and I don't recommend that anybody else uses them, but no, I don't think they're perversions and I don't think they're corrupt. I don't really buy into all that. He said, I just think we probably need to stay away from it because they're watered down and you know, we've got a better Bible and so we need to stick with it. So my dad was always honest with me growing up, listening to Moody radio. I'm hearing guys like John MacArthur, uh, guys like Chuck Swindoll, uh, David Jeremiah, Tony Evans, and these are some of the best preachers I've ever heard, but they weren't King James only. They're they're reading out of a NIV or, you know, whatever. And then when I got older into high school, Max Lucado, I mean, he's Church of Christ. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, how do I process that the independent fundamental Baptists are the only true Christians? I couldn't, I couldn't process that. And I, I think I was really good as a child at running things out to their logical end. And when I would do that, I would find the fallacy that that these things that I've been taught really can't be true, like separatism, for example. All throughout the New oh. Testament, you see Bible calling for cultural engagement and, and reaching people. And the Apostle Paul would talk to people and use their poets and argue from their mythology for Christ. And I'm like, what do we do with that? And I was asking those questions as a young boy, and by the time I got to be, uh, I got engaged at 19 years old and married at 20. And when my wife and I got engaged, we found our own church, and we both chose a Southern Baptist church that was conservative, balanced, and they were not uh, legalistic. And so we just said, "Hey, we're adults now. We're not going in that direction." And my wife wasn't raised that way, so that helped me. Oh, that's but, useful. Uh, yeah, we it, it was a it was yeah it was a gradual drift for me, and it was a gradual drift for me. And uh, by the time I was an adult, yeah, I just chose not to go that direction. Okay, so you walked away from this whole thing, and uh, now, now, real quick, before we move on, because I want to move on to talk about what you're kind of doing now and the whole shift there, was there, uh, what, did you also experience a lot of, like, authoritarianism in your little, in the circles that you dealt with, or uh, and when we say legalism, real quick, because you've mentioned legalism a few times, would you be able to define what you mean by legalism? Because some people get technical and want to say that that means you earned your salvation through works, right? So, can yeah. you define that real yeah. quick? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple different types of legalism. The first type is obviously you have to work to earn your salvation. You keep the law, uh, and and legally you earn your salvation. You earn God's approval. That is one type of uh, legalism. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that in Galatians. We see it other places. But we also see that uh, Jesus dealt with legalists, and they were not necessarily trying to earn their salvation. They were elevating tradition over God's 
laws and God's truth. So they were elevating tradition to be more important than Scripture. And we see that happening today, also in the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians, uh, a group that was called the Circumcision Party. Imagine <laughs> imagine having to come up with a how you do that, but they were called the circumcision party. Like, they were proud of that. And in the book of Acts, I think it's in chapter 15, they're, they're Pharisees that were heading up this group, and they're like, okay, we buy into Jesus, we believe the gospel, but for the Gentiles to be saved, they have to keep the law of Moses. And obviously that started with circumcision, but eventually the further you get into chapter 15, it's basically they have to keep all of the law. They had to become Jews before they became Christians, and Paul, it says, and Barnabas had no small dispute with them and debated with them about that. And then it was such a big deal that Saul and Barnabas get sent from the church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, north of Jerusalem, down to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, and we see the very first church council was held about legalism. So the very first church council is held and they debate, hotly debate this topic of whether Gentiles have to become Jews and keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to actually be saved and be a believer in Jesus and part of God's family. And they decided, no, they don't. And they gave them some guidelines, and they said, there are some things that you need to do. And they, they were things like, don't you know, drink blood from sacrifices, don't uh, eat meat that has been strangled, um, don't commit fornication, and I think one other thing that had to do, don't be polluted by idols. And they gave them the list of four things, and they told the Gentiles who they decided were already saved, they said, if you do these things, you will do well. So they decided, number one, that you don't have to work to earn your salvation. But then when they said, this is what you need to do, they didn't talk about salvation. He wasn't saying, don't eat meat that was strangled so that you can be saved. He's saying now that you are saved, Stay away from fornication, stay away from these things that were polluted by idols, and you'll do great. So I think the point that he's making is if if you're trying to keep these legal guidelines after you're saved, we don't have to heap all the burdens of the law of Moses, basically the ceremonial law and the civil laws, onto Gentiles, which we're Gentiles, and you don't have to put those burdens on the backs of Gentiles. Uh, James said, our fathers weren't even able to keep these. Why would we put these on the backs of Gentiles? Christ has come and fulfilled the law. So in Acts chapter 15, you actually see legalism that has to do with salvation, and you actually see legalism that has to do with living up to the law to maintain your salvation after yourself. Right, so the, you're right. the idea of legalism for you would be holding somebody, and what the context reason is holding people up to a tradition of man, as opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So anyway, so you left, so you left it and you kind of were like, I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. Peace out. I'm, I'm out of here. And, uh, <laughs> did you experience any wild backlash at all when you did that? Uh, was it any, any crazy wild disputes or was it just kind of like, all right, he's worldly. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely the, okay, he's worldly, but, uh, there wasn't a lot of debates. I really didn't ask anybody's opinion when my wife and I left. Good for you. We were, we were just out. And I think they already knew I wasn't there anyway, but you know, there's, there's a plot twist in my story. I ended up 
truly coming to faith in Christ when I was 25 years old. Oh, wow. So, you know, a uh, few years into my marriage, uh, 24, 25, it was 1999. So a few years into my marriage, I, I was uh, faced with my own sinfulness and trying to live up and maintain my salvation. I just never could and finally came to the place where I realized I had never repented, turned from my sins and truly trusted in Christ as my Lord. I wanted him to save me from hell. I wanted to get away from the penalty of my sin, but I never truly gave him my life and followed him in this this process called discipleship. So uh, that was something that the Holy Spirit did and worked in my heart. And when I came to Christ, I began to grow. I began to have a desire to get deeper in God's Word. And God put people in my life that would disciple me. I was, I was, uh, we moved churches a few times. And looking back, I can see the process of going deeper into God's Word ultimately ended up at a Calvary Chapel where they preached expository through books of the Bible. And that was where my Christian life, I believe, just absolutely, and my ministry absolutely took off because I began truly studying and learning God's Word in context. And God's Word became the final authority in faith and practice in my life, not just something that, that a group said was as important as God's Word, even though you couldn't find anything about it in God's Word. So, yeah, you, so you basically went from uh, asking Jesus just to be a Savior to a- actually recognizing Him as your Lord. And that was yeah. that was a big difference for myself as well. That's when I was 17 years old, when when that moment kind of, I ha- aha, and then the rest from 17 through Fairhaven and Crown College of the Bible was all just me kind of digesting through what the Bible truly says about some of these things. And, uh, you know, it, was, it took time. And then I finally, I think I left finally the fundamentals when I was about 22. So it's funny how, uh, so that happened that I realized that over time it just really was hurting me more than anything. But, uh, so you, so you went, went from the IFB and now you're a pastor, correct? And, yes. I, and I know we just had Justin Spurgeon on the podcast who attends your church, which I thought was actually really yeah. cool. It's like, hey, an old <laughs> friend, now it's all connected. This is awesome. But uh, so the thing is, is, you know, with you as a pastor now, uh, did you jump into ministry? What time did you start pastoring churches? How old were you, roughly? Well, I was, uh, I would say about 26 or 27 when I started uh, volunteering for prison ministry at our church. And I wasn't even necessarily called to preach. I hadn't said that was something in my life. I just wanted to go and share my testimony. And within about a month of sharing my testimony and actually writing and delivering sermons in the prisons and jails, uh, God just lit a fire in my heart. And I began, um, I announced my call to preach and, and spoke, talked that over with my pastor and the youth pastor that I was serving under and felt like God was calling me into youth ministry. When I began, when I truly began, became saved and, and became a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ, almost immediately, Will, God began uh, dealing with me, and I, I think it was the same week I got saved. I began to pray this prayer that shocked me the first time I prayed it. It was, God, let me do what my dad did. Let me work with young people and lead them faith in the Lord. And really, my dad worked with at-risk boys that were in trouble with the law and and were, you know, in, in the foster care, orphans, things like that. And uh, the first time I prayed that, it, it shocked me. It was like, who said that? <laughs> and and it wasn't what I wanted to do, but God began calling me into youth ministry. And I was a youth pastor for about 16, 17 years, started a ministry in the trailer park, and uh, eventually branched out into the uh, housing projects in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we were able to reach a lot of kids 
that uh, were raised in some of the most uh, uh, horrible circumstances you could imagine, parents in jail and prison, uh, drug use, uh, just a different man in the house every night, prostitution, you know, all sorts of different things, lots of abuse of these kids. And we were able to go in and take the gospel to them and able to help some of their parents as well and shine a light in a really dark place. And I guess it was about uh, five or six years ago, the transition started happening in my heart. I always said I was going to be an 85-year-old youth pastor, that this wasn't a stepping stone (laughs) for me. I wanted to be the oldest youth pastor in America. And uh, I was just all about, this is not a stepping stone. But when right right about the time I I was 39, 40 years old, I'm 45 now. But right about the time I was, you know, reaching close to my 40s, uh, I began seeing my heart and my desires change from youth to expository teaching of the Bible. And I continued in youth ministry up until 2016. That's when God called us to plant Hope Church. And Brian Edwards was very helpful with me on that and uh, was basically my mentor, as he's done for many, many different men. And uh, right now, just living into my calling as uh, as a lead teaching pastor and an elder, and serve with uh, three other elders at our church. We're elder led, not deacon led, and uh, that's totally different from anything I grew up. Oh in yeah, IFP. for sure. I do. I, yeah, I do lean reformed. I, I say I lean reformed because reformed means one thing to one person and something else to other people. I don't call myself a Calvinist, even though most people would say that I'm a Calvinist. You're a Calvinist, Peg. It's fine. Totally. <laughs> Maybe Calvinist light. I don't know. But uh, if Spurgeon was a Calvinist, I don't mind being called a Calvinist. But that means <laughs> so many different things to different people. But For I sure. have been heavily influenced by some uh, Reformed and Calvinist guys. And that's, that's where I really started going deep in theology and in God's Word. And uh, that, that, to me, was where I found what I had always been looking for when it came to studying the Bible. That's Yeah, so that's fantastic. So it really was like over time, you just kind of noticed some things. And it's kind of funny how you let the Bible, even when you're like nine, ten years old, go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And I remember when I was a teenager, I just kept trying, because again, I'm a very logical person. I'm actually philosophically minded pretty much as an average person. So all these inconsistencies kept making me go, what? That doesn't make, I must be missing something. And I just kept trying to convince myself, like, I was crazy. And then over time, I was like, nah, I'm not the crazy one. I, I, I think I'm sane. I think I got this. Uh, so yeah. that's really great, though, that you, yeah, how you've changed into that now and then building into youth ministry. Youth ministry is a lot of fun and a huge blessing. Uh, but now jumping into, you know, being a lead teaching role, all that, that is so cool. So it's, God's really used to all this. So instead of, you know, I, one of the things I appreciate about you guys is it's not like you look at the IFB and you just have this horrible anger bitterness toward it. It's not animosity. It's not like you're just trying to like go after them and like, you know, kill them dead. But you're honestly, it seems like you guys are truly calling for biblical reform. Like guys, if you guys say you're biblical people, let's bring it back to being biblical because there's a lot of great people in that movement too. And you know, we wouldn't want to demonize them. So, uh, so the thing is, I guess with all this and just kind of bringing this, uh, kind of land the plane here a little bit, when you are Going into all this, now, why is it that you chose to start RFP or something like this so late? Because you said you're 45 now. This was a thing that you started in 2019. It would be something I'd more think that you guys would really kick off when you're fresh out of it, not when you've got plenty of years between you and it. So is there a reason why you think you decided to start it now? Uh, or just, yeah. I think that 
Yeah, the journey in my life was, it was just time. It was right. These were conversations that JC and I and Brian and I were having. Uh, JC and I have been having these for over 20 years. Wow. And uh, I remember uh, back 20 years ago, riding back from uh, a youth retreat that he and I were both leaders at in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we both had to come back early for work. And we had a very deep conversation over 20 years ago. And man, God was doing things in our hearts, but I think we had to uh, experience some depth in our life and, and really be able to put these things into, into uh, words that would connect with people. And for JC and myself and Brian, for all of us, really the bottom line issue with everything we do is the gospel. We want to help and encourage people that have been hurt by legalism and uh, false fundamentalism and uh, help them leave, help them come back to God, because many people, as you know, walk away from the church, oh, absolutely. walk away from faith, because they've been hurt in church, and they just equate that with God. Well, a lot of what happens in uh, legalistic churches, most of what happens in legalistic churches can't be blamed on God. It, it's, he has nothing to do with it. He's nowhere around it. And so we are calling people back to faith in Him. We've had multiple people come to faith in Christ, receive Christ. Uh, through the podcast, uh, people that have reached out to us and started attending church again That's after amazing. calling themselves atheists, and after going through a total faith deconstruction process, now they're back in church, they're listening to the podcast. We, we have listeners that are still on that journey. We also really wanted to challenge the movement. We do want to see reformed, reform within the, uh, the IFB movement, and whether that means blowing it up and starting over, abandoning ship, or whether it means guys fighting for reform from the inside, like a lot of them are, and a lot of them listen to us and have reached out to us privately and communicated with us that they appreciate what we're doing and we're right and it needs to be done. We don't agree on everything, but they know that there is a need for reform. So we we really do want to challenge, and a lot of people take issue with the things we say and they think we broad brush and we demonize and we bash if they will actually listen, they'll, they'll find out that's not what we're about, but we care about the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And that's what's ultimately going to change the world, not some brand of fundamentalism that's all about rules and, and, and keeping external appearances of the law. That's not what it's about. Jesus said it's not what's on the outside that defiles someone, it's their heart. So we care deeply about the gospel, and we're proclaiming that through this podcast, and we believe that God's using it to bring about change. Absolutely. And I know so many, my sister recently got turned on to you guys. She's like, have you listened to them? I'm like, Melinda, I had JC on the program. Like, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care about me. That's what it comes down to. But uh, <laughs> throwing shade at her on the program. Anyway, but no, like one of the things, I, I think that's so beautiful, though, but it's also powerful because it shows that. You know, I think of what Paul says when he said, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, just because mm -hmm. I am telling you the truth does not mean I hate you, does not mean I'm trying to broad brush you or beat you down. It means I'm trying to bring truth to you, and I hope that you can open your ears. Uh, and, you know, I think that's fantastic that you guys do that. And the fact that it brings people back to God shows the fact that this isn't the the devil's work that you guys are doing. It shows that God's in it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, my, my podcast is much smaller, but at the same time, I've even had people reach out to us where it's like, wow, that really struck me. And it's so encouraging because you're like, okay, so... 
I'm not. This, I, I, it's not doing all the, all the devil's work. It's doing stuff like what you and I do, where we're putting ourselves out there. We're, we're not saying anything that's not controversial. I mean, it's controversial. <laughs> and so it's, it's refreshing, but you do see the Lord work in it. So I guess you kind of already hit on it, but my final question that I always ask all my guests is, you know, the church split, even though we're about, we talk division and we're called the church split. Our goal is uni unity and unity through truth, though. We're not just some you know, platonic idea and vague idea of unity just because we love each other or some hippie nonsense, but uh, really this idea of unity through truth. So how yeah. do you think that even though, because you guys get called, you know, you get called pot stirrers, you get called a lot of things, and, oh, none yeah. of them, and none of them nice sometimes. Uh, what, what, how would you believe that your ministry with RFP can help unite a divided body? That's a great question. And one of the reasons that I listed out early on when we were just discussing this podcast, why I'm not a fundamentalist or why I don't call myself a fundamentalist anymore, is that I have exchanged elitism for unity. The fundamentalist movement was started to promote unity so that anyone across any denomination who uh, subscribed to these certain fundamentals of the faith could be considered Orthodox Christians, true Christians, and we can have fellowship in the body of Christ. Even though we're diverse, even though there's not uniformity, there can be unity. But the fundamentalist movement, as I said in the beginning, got hijacked, and now it's all about separatism. And I believe, ultimately, separatism is about elitism. It's about, we're better than you because we have a better version of the Bible. We're better than you because our dress standards are better. We're better than you because we run with this circle. And elitism is about pride. It's not about unity. It's, it's not about humility, which is what the true disciples of Christ are called to. So I believe by us uh, helping and encouraging, obviously that promotes unity in the body of Christ because there are a lot of people that have been hurt by fundamentalism, and somebody needs to speak to them. They're not going to go to an IFB church. Somebody needs to speak to them, and it's probably not going to be an independent fundamental Baptist that reaches them. God calls different people to reach different groups at different times and different seasons. So we're obviously trying to promote unity in the body of Christ across denominations, across different uh, groups, even within the IFB. But I think we're also pushing for unity within the IFB by challenging them, because ultimately the thing that brings unity is the gospel of Jesus <laughs> yep. Christ. So as we push, as we push the buck, and as we challenge those that are in the inside, we see God doing a work of grace through our feeble efforts. And, I mean, we get to have fun while we're doing it. If anybody's ever listened to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, they know that Brian, JC, and myself, we love to laugh. We love to have a good time. And sometimes we go too far, and that's okay. We apologize, and we've had to apologize a lot. But we have a whole lot of fun, and we believe that what we're doing is, is making a difference. Yeah, no, and I think I agree. I think that it's important to do that, and also, like you said, challenging some of these people, so going challenging the ideas, but also bringing unity through encouraging. Uh, uh, you know, there is. I say, you know, we could be united. We could, there's unity and diversity all the time. Uh, you use uh, yeah. the word uniformity. I like that. Uh, so anyway, uh, well, that was. Uh, I mean, that's enlightening. That's encouraging. I, that's what's so nice about your guys' show. It is funny. It is fun. And you guys can cut up sometimes, and I think that's actually refreshing because when people think when they think Christian podcast, they think boring Christian podcast. And whatever I've listened to your guys is, is never 
ever been a boring time. It's a great time. So, um, but anyway, Nathan, I really appreciate you agreeing to come on and just kind of share with us and encourage us a little bit. And for those who are listening uh, to the church split and you haven't already, what have you been doing? Go to Recovering Fundamentals podcast. Go give them a listen. They're fantastic. They're a great group of guys, good Christian men, trying to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not just there to to whine and complain, but in all honesty, they're bringing the gospel to the forefront of all the issues. So thank you, Nathan, for agreeing to come on. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say before we close? Will, thank you for having me on. I love what you're doing, man. And I haven't listened to as much as I would like to or as much as I'm going to of your Uh-oh. podcast. But, man, uh, definitely going to uh, promote you guys. Thank you. This is It's amazing how many uh, similar podcasts are popping up, and I think it's the right timing, and God is behind this. And, man, we're on the same team. And I celebrate what you're doing and uh, just glad to be a help. And thank you for your kind words about the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. No problem, man. Well, hey, you take care. God bless. I'll probably talk to you soon.